Okay, well, we began last time uh, looking at Isaiah and began with the prophets and we talked about what a prophet is and uh, maybe the main thing that we emphasized last week was uh, Deuteronomy 18 and that a true prophet uh, was from God and had to speak the truth and we found all the different ways that uh, other people in other cultures received revelation from their deities but how God received, uh, prophets received their words directly from God. So that was this handout right here that is back there. And we're going to be finishing up the, the bottom part of that handout. And then we have this handout also for um, what will come after that. It's a map. If you have maps in your Bible, you'll probably be able to f figure that out. So let's finish uh, what a prophet is in the Old Testament. Uh, so the next point uh, is that the prophets were intercessors. The prophets were intercessors. They prayed. So I'm just going to go through these a little more quickly. Um, Abraham in Genesis 20 is mentioned as a prophet who intercedes. So I'll read Genesis 20 verse 7. Now then, this is God speaking to King Absalom. He says, now then, return the man. He is a prophet so that he will pray for you and you shall live. So the prophets, uh, Abraham here is described as a prophet. And part of the prophet's job was to pray for the people. And then in Jeremiah 15, verse 1, uh, God says to Jeremiah, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn toward this people. Send them out of my sight and let them go. So uh, the prophets had sort of like the role of the priest. They kind of overlapped in this way, that the prophets not only gave messages from God, but they were also called to pray for the people of God. And so God says, even if Moses, the great prophet, and Samuel were before me and prayed for these people, I still wouldn't turn away my wrath. So they uh, interceded, they prayed. Uh, the next point is that the prophets also wrote history. So in 1 Chronicles 29, 29, it says, Now the acts of King David from first to last are in the chronicles of Samuel the seer and the chronicles of Nathan, the prophet, and the chronicles of Gad, the seer. So remember, the, the term seer is a title for the prophet. And so we don't have these books, but apparently Samuel wrote some chronicles, and Gad and Nathan, they were all prophets, and they wrote chronicles, which were stories, records, about what the kings in their lifetime did. Um, so, uh, some of them we have available, some of them we don't, but that was another part of some of these prophets' job is to write down the history, especially of the kings. And so in the Old Testament, we have, uh, in, the, in the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish Bible, they divide it uh, into former prophets and what they call the latter prophets. So, former means beginning, latter is second, the end. And so the former prophets are what we call history books, some of the history books. So Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. 
Joshua, Judges, Samuel, maybe Ruth there too, but Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, uh, the Hebrews consider those to be prophets, prophetic books. And that's because the prophets were writing the history of those books. And then we have the latter prophets, which are the ones that we think of, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then we go on with the, the minor prophets. Okay, so the prophets wrote history. Now, uh, moving on, so let me ask you a question. So today, if someone were to call himself a prophet, what do you usually think that means? What is he claiming? If someone calls himself a prophet. Yeah, Richard? They hear from God. Hear a message from God. Okay, good. Anything else? <laughs> Predicting the future. Right. So that's usually what we think. God is revealing something to them. And a lot of times they are predicting something about the future. Uh, So there are cults today. So Mormonism still claims that they have a prophet who is essentially like the Pope of Mormonism, except that he, well, he he continues to get revelation from God. Uh, That's what he claims. And so he claims to be infallible in his pronouncements. Um, So many people Many cults, many false teachers out there claim that God is speaking to them. And so we're not going to talk a whole lot. We could have lessons and lessons about prophecy in the New Testament. But based on our understanding in the Old Testament, at least, and I think it does carry over into the New Testament, is that if someone claims to be a prophet, they are claiming to speak from God. They are claiming to have the word of the Lord. And so that's the main reason that we don't believe that prophecy still exists in the sense of what the Bible talks about. Um, So we don't believe that a man, a preacher like me, can claim that God gave me direct revelation. And so you know how it goes if you've been in these churches that say, God has told me that someone in this room has something going on in their life and uh, you need to come forward and we will pray for you. And then you're in the room and you're, oh, something's going on in my life. That must be talking about me, right? So that's how it works. But they're claiming that God is speaking directly to you from the, from the prophet of today. Um, and then, of course, like we said, one of the main things people do today is they try to predict the future, especially the end of the world. So we could go on and on with examples of people who've predicted the end of the world, and it hasn't come to pass. The world is still here. So they are false prophets, according to Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18 said that if it doesn't come to pass, then they are false prophets. So... I bring that up to make the point for this next uh, topic we're going to talk about is that that's not the main job of the Old Testament prophet is to predict the future, to look into the future. So there's a a quote there uh, under the letter C, number 4C, where this person says, the task of the prophet focused primarily on reforming the behavior of the people and the nation as a whole by calling them back to exclusive and heartfelt covenant loyalty 
and obedience to the Lord and his word already revealed. So the work of the prophet is to call people back to the word of God and say, you guys have strayed from the word. Here's what the word of God says, and here's what you're not doing. And you need to come back and give loyalty to God. Uh, Usually the issues are idolatry, right? Stop worshiping idols. And so in that sense, um, though we don't believe that the gift of prophecy exists today, in that sense, that description of the prophet is similar to a preacher today. Uh, except the preacher doesn't get new messages. This is his message, right? So this is all the word of God that we have. And the preacher's job is to say, this is what the word of God says. And call people back to obedience and to the love of the Lord. Uh, so that's the main role of the prophet of the Old Testament. So, uh, the prophets, you could call them lawyers. And actually, the Old Testament uses that word. It uses the word for lawsuit. Uh, when God says, uh, in my ESV, it's translated as contention. God says, I have a contention with you. I am contending with you. It's the word for a lawsuit. God is suing them. Remember Exodus at the at the Mount, at Mount Sinai? They pledged obedience to God. And so when they disobey, it's the job of the prophets to come and prosecute them and say, you have not been faithful to the covenant that you promised to keep. So here's an example, a reference in 2 Kings 17, 13. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers, that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. So, the role of the prophet is to remind them of the threats of the law. And in the Old Testament, those threats were given in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 and 29. That was the covenant of Moses that they were under. And God says, if you obey these, you will be blessed. If you disobey these, you will be cursed. And so the prophets come along and they say, uh, you guys better stop or those curses from Leviticus are going to come upon you. So it helps to know the first five books of Moses and it helps to know the law of God and, and uh, what we call the Pentateuch because that's the basis of what the prophets are saying over and over and over again. Um, Ezekiel uses Leviticus a lot. And so he, he always talks about your staff of bread. You're going you're gonna to have no staff of bread. So if you're reading Ezekiel, you read it and you say, what is he talking about? That doesn't make any sense. You're going to have no staff of bread. Well, it's a quote from Leviticus 26. God says, if you disobey my covenant, I will break your staff of bread. And it was a staff that they hung their bread on to get the mice not to eat the bread. And so they would hang it up in their house 
uh, with bread. And so God is saying, you're not going to be able to have any bread. So, so that's a, an example of how a prophet is using the, old, the um, five books of Moses, the law of Moses. And then on the other hand, we have the promises of God. God made promises to Abraham, and he made promises at Mount Sinai. So he promised them a land, he promised them a nation, and he promised that he would be their God. So that's what the prophets are also looking forward to. If you obey, you get the land, you'll still be a nation, and God will still be your God. Okay, so the, uh, to emphasize this again, so the, this is the last point on this topic. Uh, the main work of the prophets is not foretelling the future. So if you're looking to read the Old Testament prophets to learn about the end times, well, you're not going to find as much as you want. So let me read this quote that is there in the outline under number five. Less than 2% of Old Testament prophecy is messianic. Less than 5% specifically describes the new covenant age. And less than 1% is concerned with events yet to come. Okay? So, we like to focus on the messianic prophecies especially. uh, Like... um, the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, or um, the shepherd that will come out of Bethlehem in Micah 5. Well, those are 2% of all of the Old Testament prophets. And then he says less than 1% about events yet to come, talking about our day. So events after Christ, there's only 1% about how the world is going to end. And that's according to how they, how they calculate it. So, it's not about finding out what's going to happen in the future. It's about how we can obey God now. And how we can love God now. So, uh, let me read one more um, quote from, this one's not in your outline. Uh, but he says, the Abrahamic, and Sinaitic, that's Mount Sinai, those covenants are the foundation for the preaching of the prophets of Israel. It is what God has said in the past that's used as the measuring rod applied to the present. Okay, so remember, the past of the five books of Moses applied to the present. And this naturally has implications for the future. So, he says this, this threefold focus on past, present, and future must always be borne in mind when reading the prophets and understanding their message. So that was the key point that I wanted to highlight here, is that you have to know the past, present, and future of what the prophets are referring to if you're going to understand the prophets. So we talked about the past, right? So you have to know the five books of Moses. Today we're focused more on the present. What is going on in Isaiah's day? Um, We'll talk about Isaiah 7 and King Ahaz and Pekah and Rezin. Now you probably 
are not very familiar with pica and resin. Um, but if I told you the verse in Isaiah 7, a virgin will conceive and bear a child and you will call his name Emmanuel, I bet that sounds familiar. I bet you have an idea what that's about. But what is the context of that promise of the virgin who will have a child named Emmanuel? The context has to do with some guy named Pekah and some other guy named Rezin and a King Ahaz. So we'll talk about that in a minute. We also have to, as he says here, we also have to keep in mind the future. What are the implications for the future? And of course, this is where it gets controversial and difficult uh, because your, your view of the end times is going to influence how you interpret the prophets. So let me, let's look at one example. Let's go to Mark chapter 1, the very beginning, uh, verse 2. Well, we'll start in verse 1. So Mark chapter 1. Uh, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. So, a few interesting things about that verse. So, as Mark begins his gospel, he's going to introduce John, John the Baptist. Uh, so, first he says, it's written in Isaiah the prophet. Well, first of all, verse 2 is quoting Malachi. And Malachi promised that a messenger would come before the day of the Lord. And then in chapter 4 of Malachi, Malachi promised that Elijah was coming. So, if you are going to take, if I can use the word literal, if you're going to take it literally, Malachi's prophecy, then Elijah is supposed to come before the, the Messiah comes, before salvation comes. But Mark is telling us that this Elijah is John. And then he's in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. So Isaiah, uh, so Mark is making the point, the, the Lord who is coming is Jesus. And Isaiah is prophesying about how John would come to prepare the way of the Lord. Uh, so we're not going to go into a, a whole in-depth Bible study about this verse, but I'm bringing up this verse to say that you have to be careful about how certain we are about what the prophets are saying about the future and all the details about the future and what's going to happen in the end times. Because um, if 
you literally were waiting for Elijah, that man Elijah wasn't coming. But the New Testament tells us that that prophecy is fulfilled, but it's fulfilled through John the Baptist. Uh, so we need to we need to have we be careful. We ha- can have humility. We can still say, well, uh, you know, if I'm reading this prophecy about the end times, uh, this is what I think is going to happen. But but there's a lot that we don't know about how these prophecies. So, we have to bear in mind the, the future. But today, what I wanted to focus on was the present. So, what's going on in Isaiah's day? And that's probably the next time we'll, we'll focus also on this. So, part of understanding the Bible uh, and growing in understanding the Bible is learning more about what the Bible meant to those who were reading it. And sometimes, some people, they might focus on reading the Bible for daily inspiration, looking for good quotes, or looking for, maybe you're looking for some some good doctrinal points, without focusing on what is this passage actually saying and what does it mean in its context. Uh, So I'm going to read from Sinclair Ferguson's book called Maturity. He tells a story about this. Uh, So he says, we grow as Christians as we are well fed on scripture. This involves more than learning a few isolated texts to help us. As we meditate on God's word as a whole, not just its information, but its atmosphere and spirit becomes Part of us. How we study the Bible is related to this. Now he's telling a story. Many years ago, a friend told me how much he was benefiting from his daily reading in Ephesians. So I mentioned that I thought Christians don't always read the Bible in the best possible way. He asked, what do you mean? So I put it like this. If I gave you a notebook to write down what you were learning each day as you studied Ephesians, and at the end of the month you let me read it, what would I discover? Number one, that you had written a diary of your spiritual autobiography, how you felt, what you thought of your relationship to Christ, your own needs and failures, or number two, a basic outline of what God actually says in Ephesians through Paul, with some application to your life. You can guess his reply. Immediately, he said, oh, number one. So he realized that though he had been reading Ephesians each day, he could not tell me what Ephesians was about. He used it only as a mirror to see himself and not to see the Lord. But that is to half-learn Scripture. So my friend began his study of Ephesians all over again and sometime later told me he felt a minor revolution had taken place in his life. He now discovered blessings, uh, more blessings in God's word. Now he could tell people what God said in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Uh, So we want to read the Bible 
and not just kind of read ourselves into it. So, uh, you know, I'm having a hard day, so I read Isaiah 7, and now I'm, I'm comforted by the fact that this Emmanuel child is promised. Uh, we can read it that way, but there's a lot more. So what does it mean? So what I want to do for the rest of our time, probably going to run out of time, is um, talk about some historical background in Isaiah. So let me give you an illustration, and I'll ask you this, these are questions for you, of why it's important to know historical background. Okay, so I'm going to give you a sentence. It's maybe You can call it a riddle or something. And you'll tell me if you know what I'm talking about, okay? Okay, so listen to the sentence. A man whose name is a smell owns a spaceship company. And he buys a website named after a bird noise and changes the website to a letter of the alphabet. <laughs> yeah? It's now X. Yes. So um, Elon Musk, yep. Elon Musk owns SpaceX. He buys Twitter. He changes Twitter to X. So how did you know that's what it was about? <laughs> because you, you know who Elon Musk is. Many of you do. Uh, you know what SpaceX is. You know what Twitter was. And you know what X is. And so based on all that information that you already have, you can interpret a sentence. And so someone in 1950 would read that sentence and they would have no clue what that sentence was about. Uh, I'll, read, I'll give you one more example. I think you'll get this one. There's a company named after the largest river in the world. And by clicking a mouse, almost any product in the world will show up at your door. Good job. Good job. Okay, so you know what Amazon is. You know what a computer mouse is. You, you don't think that you're clicking on the gray mouse. Um, you know that there's this delivery service that brings things to your door. So again, in 1950, none of those things would have even been conceived of or thought possible. So how do you think it is when we start to read Isaiah? And Isaiah was... Uh, 2,700 years ago in a Middle Eastern culture that we are totally unfamiliar with. So Isaiah will just say something and you read it and you say, I have no idea what that means. Or again, you read about resin and pica and you say, I have no idea who those people are. But if you can learn more about those things, then you understand what Isaiah is trying to say. There are references that you won't pick up on right away, but if you study, if you learn, you will pick up on the references. So let's go to Isaiah chapter 7. So you know verse 14. 
The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So that's the promise. Why does God say that promise? And I'm not going to really give you the answer today because we're only going to scratch the surface. But notice this in verse 10, God is giving this promise to Ahaz, to Ahaz, King Ahaz. Uh, then uh, let's go back to verse 1, chapter 7, verse 1. So we find out the context of this. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. Okay, so uh, I don't think Handel's Messiah sings about uh, these kings, uh, but you need to understand better who these kings are to understand the chapter in this story. So we have Ahaz, king of Judah. We have Rezin, king of Syria. Pekah, king of Israel. Uh, we can go down to verse 7. Let's go to verse 7. Thus says the Lord God, uh, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus. The head of Damascus is Rezin. Okay, so Syria is a nation. Damascus is the capital of Syria, and Rezin is the king of Syria. Within 65 years, Ephraim, that's Israel, will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, so the capital of Israel is Samaria. The head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. The son of Remaliah is Pekah, he's the king of Israel. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So, what's happening here is that God is calling Ahaz to have faith, to believe that he will protect him. Um, so, look at the map that was back there. Look at the map, and on the left side of the map, Okay, well, let's start with the right side. The, the right side is the nation of Israel, which was split up into two kingdoms, Judah and Israel. So Israel's in the north. Judah is in the south. They split up. They had a civil war after Solomon in 930. So they are now two nations. So usually when you see Israel at this point, it's referring to the north and Judah is in the south. So now the left side, the left map, you see that we have Assyria and Babylon on the right, Judah kind of in the middle, and Egypt on the left. So because we like the Bible and we think the Bible is important and Israel is important, uh, we kind of have in our minds that back then Israel was this mighty nation. But the truth is Israel is a tiny nation. That's not a very good description. But Israel is the tiny nation and the major empires are Egypt, Assyria, 
and Babylon. And Assyria and Babylon and Egypt don't really care that much about Israel itself. But you see that Israel is the, the middle child stuck in the middle between the brothers who are fighting each other in the car. Okay? So, you ever had that experience? Brother whacking his brother on the other side, and the middle child gets the wax. Uh, that's Israel. So, Egypt wants to conquer. There's not much in Africa to conquer. The desert is not very appealing. So they want to conquer the Mesopotamian area, the fertile area, right? Lots of uh, lush uh, places to, to grow crops and make lots of money. So Egypt is always trying to conquer Assyria and Babylon. And Babylon and Assyria are always wanting to expand. And they want to conquer Egypt because the Nile is very fertile. So you make lots of money. And you can make lots of money if you have this area going to the Mediterranean. You get, get all that stuff in the Mediterranean. So Israel is always stuck in the middle. And that's what basically uh, <laughs> all of the prophets, all of the prophets are talking about that time period. And so God is using all these events for his purposes for his people, Israel. God is going to use Assyria to come and destroy Israel. And he's going to use Babylon to come and destroy Judah. And those kings, they're not thinking, oh, I'm going to be the judgment of God on Israel. No, all they're thinking is, I want to get to Egypt. And I want to conquer Egypt. And I have to go through this nation. But God uses those people and those plans of the nations. And just a little application for us. God is working in history. God is working in the world. When presidents of the United States make decisions and congressmen get into Congress and Supreme Courts make decisions, this is all God working to establish his kingdom, to establish his purposes for his people. And, of course, they don't see that. They don't know that they're doing that. But they are the instruments that God is using. God is building his church around the world, and America is one nation in the world where Christ is building his church, but God is accomplishing his purpose. So, um, in Isaiah's day... Assyria is the dominant power. So Isaiah is alive from 740 to 690. That, that's his ministry. That's when he's preaching. So he preaches for about 50 years, 740 to 690. Assyria's uh, in the most powerful time is 745 612. So basically the main time when Isaiah is a prophet is the height of Assyria's empire. So what's happening in chapter 7 is teams are starting to form up. 
So there's another nation here, Syria, let's say. Syria's up here. I don't know if that's quite accurate, but uh, Syria is up here, and Syria teams up with the north, Israel. So everybody is trying to save their skin from Assyria coming to kill them. Uh, the Assyrians were cruel. From my understanding, they were the ones who invented crucifixion. There's no evidence of killing people alive by, by nailing them or um, you know, sticking them to something until the Assyrians came along. They invented forms of cruelty, of torture and killing people. So everybody's afraid of the Assyrians. And the Assyrians are coming to defeat Israel. So Israel, which is uh, Pekah, right? Pekah decides his solution is to team up with Syria. And maybe if they team up, they can hold back Assyria for a while. Judah, King Ahaz, he decides that his solution is to team up with Assyria, the bad guys. He says, well, if I just pay him off, I just give him some taxes, then maybe he won't wipe us out. We'll just keep him happy, we'll send him money, but of course he's teaming up with the ungodly, the bad guys. And yeah, Assyria will have no mercy. So, so that's Ahaz's decision. So Judah is now teaming up with Assyria. So what we have in chapter 7, well now that Judah is on Assyria's team, these guys are enemies of Judah. So they've come, they've attacked, this is, they've done this before, and now here in chapter 7, Israel and Syria are coming to wipe out the kingdom of Judah, annihilate King Ahaz. And that's the question. So now Isaiah comes and says, Ahaz, who's going to help you now? Has Assyria helped you? No. The Lord, the Lord will help you if you believe the Lord, if you have faith in the Lord. And he says, ask of a sign from the Lord. And he has, no, I'm not going to give the Lord a test. And he says, here's your sign. A virgin will have a child and name him Emmanuel. You'll have to wait for the sermon on chapter 7 for uh, how that's fulfilled. Um, but here's how knowing what's going on in the history, in the historical context, helps you understand um, what's happening in this chapter. Okay, so here's Isaiah. His call is to trust God and not to trust Assyria to deliver him from, from this team that's coming to attack him. Well, that's one example. Uh, we'll talk about some more historical background in Isaiah, uh, Lord willing, future weeks. Let's pray together. Our God, we do thank you for your word and how you've revealed yourself in your word. And we pray that you would grow us deeper and deeper in understanding your word, that we might know you. We desire to, to follow you. We desire to trust in you. 
Lord, we do pray that you would help us to, to not be like Ahaz, but instead to stand firm in faith, to not go after other things to deliver us, but to trust in you. Especially, Lord, we desire to rest all of our trust upon Jesus Christ as our Savior. And we thank you also, Lord, for this reminder that you are working in history, that you are working all things for the good of your people, uh, that you are establishing your kingdom, that one day Mount Zion will be the highest of the mountains and all nations will stream to that mountain. Help us to continue to stand firm in faith and following you until that day. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.